Welcome to another ESL podcast. I am your host, Arsenio, as usual. Just want to say thank you to all the countries that listen to me on a consistent basis. Uh, Nepal, you know, there are some places I never even heard of that, you know, uh, you know, I had some wonderful followers who are following me. So I just want to say thank you so much to not only you, but everyone else who consistently listens to me from the Colombia, the Peru, the Dominican Republica, the uh, Estados Unidos, that means the United States of America. <laughs> I'm so good. Anyways, thank you so much, guys. And we're going to be getting into some close soliciting today. <sighs> Here we go. First and foremost, we're going to listen to a lecture. You know exactly how I do this. I like you guys to do the exercise on my website, okay? Now, you're going to be putting the main points in order. Now, of course, on this podcast, we are going to discuss what the lecture is about. But again, what we're going to be doing here, the main thing and the main focus today is following abstract argumentation. So I'm going to give you four different types. We have arguments, assumptions, reasoning, and conclusion. Now, this is going to be about memory, questions, and the mind, okay? So, again, we have things such as a place with many rooms, a leaky bucket, a computer. You know, what is the best metaphor, in your opinion, for human memory? All right, so this is what we're going to be discussing. However, let's talk about arguments. Arguments are often presented in stages, okay? So recognizing these stages helps the listener to follow and understand the line of reasoning and evaluate the conclusion reached by the speaker, okay? Assumptions, which is number two, is about the speaker and how he presents the premise of the argument, making one or more statements, right? Now, the speaker may identify these, uh, you know, very openly as the argument. Reasoning is evidence, okay? And this, it, it can either support or it can refute. Refute meaning the opposite of support. So it can completely negate the argument, okay? The speaker can include reasoning for both sides. You show consideration, more than one perspective. And what this often does is, is that it strengthens the eventual conclusion. Now, a conclusion, of course, having given the argument, and possibly summarized it, the speaker indicates his or her position. So implicit assumptions are common in day-to-day life, right? In these cases, speakers, you know, deliberately or not, meaning they do this intentionally or not, they include points they assume the audience believes and provide no reasoning for these, recognize these assumptions, and then decide for yourself if you agree with these assumptions. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be getting into this. This is a long one. And I hope that my speaker does last. You guys know how my speaker is. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to last eight minutes, but all I can do is pray. So here we go. And let's get into it. Good afternoon. Uh, settle down. <clears throat> Thanks. I'm sure that most of you will be starting your research this trimester and that you'll be doing qualitative research. So I thought it timely to have a lecture on how those questions should be framed. As students at this college, you're all aware of the expectation that research is aimed at finding out information, not proving your own case. In other words, you should be prepared for some unwelcome results. 
that is actually a good sign, as we shall see. It indicates that the research followed the scientific method, a method we all believe to be the only valid method. The actual topics I'm going to talk about today are memory distortion or memory hacking. You've certainly read about that in your assignment and preparing interviews and questionnaires. Now, these are not completely separate subjects, so I'll treat them as interconnected. Ethics are at the heart of both topics. So, starting with memory, the majority of people automatically think that memory is like a bucket. You put a memory in the bucket, and later you get it out, unchanged. This is a common sense view of memory, reinforced by analogies to computer storage, which are actually false analogies. Our brains are very different from electronic computers. Of course, you may forget, or it may become hard to recall, but people assume that if they can recall it, it will be the same as when it went in. But research disproves this, as we shall see. Now, moving on to questions. Most people assume that a questionnaire or interview is a fair way of finding out people's opinions. After all, you're not bound to say anything you don't want to, are you? But again, our understanding of the science of questioning, in particular for marketing or political purposes, shows how wrong this viewpoint is. As we understand more about our irrational responses, our biases, we can see that there are ways to trigger these biases, which are fairly easy for people to use, and in fact, it is actually quite hard to avoid this triggering through careless questioning. But you must avoid this bias triggering if, for example, you want to do valid research. Excuse me? Can you tell us how these biases can be avoided in questionnaires? Of course. But first, let's compare these two and look at why I make these claims. That is, A, why it's wrong to equate the mind with a computer, and B, why bad questioning can actually influence what people think. I can see by your expressions that some of you are skeptical on hearing this comparison. That's okay. You're scientists and you should doubt any claim without evidence. So, again, starting with memory, if it isn't a bucket, what is it? Well, an important clue came from the work, initially, of Elizabeth Loftus, a cognitive psychologist working at the end of the 20th century, who showed that it is possible to plant a memory, in other words, to make people believe, truly believe, that they remember something that actually never happened. I'll say that again. You can make people remember an experience that they haven't had or details of an experience that are completely untrue. She was working to show that many people have been convicted of crimes which they hadn't committed on the basis of false memories. Her work has since been corroborated by many studies, including a recent one by Julia Shaw of the University of Bedfordshire, and Stephen Porter of the University of British Columbia. In the journal Psychological Science, they described how they implanted false memories so successfully that 70% of the subjects believed them, more than double what they had expected. Which comes back to my earlier point. Good research can surprise us. 
And this was good research and powerful evidence. Let's turn to questions. I'll look at three kinds of question that don't really aim at extracting a straight answer. If you use these in your research, you are, in effect, distorting the research to suit your point of view. The first are called push-pull questions. These work by introducing an idea or emotion that you wouldn't have already had that deliberately suggests a course of action. They are a manipulation tool, widely used in politics and, naturally, marketing. I suppose you can say that politics is basically a form of marketing, getting people to choose your product or political party or candidate. So they ask questions like, would you vote for this candidate if you knew that she was opposed by human rights groups? Now, you have introduced doubt into the mind of the person you are interviewing, even though there may be no actual truth or substance in the idea that the candidate has human rights issues. And this doubt may affect future action or choices. Another type of question is commonly banned in law courts. It's the leading question, where you give the answer in the question, such as, on the night of the murder, were you in New York? Rather than a non-leading, legitimate question, where were you on the night of the murder? Questions like these, if they were to be allowed, could possibly be used by the prosecution to convince a jury that they should convict an innocent man. And the third type of unfair, unethical question for the purposes of research is the suggestive question. This can either add in a detail that makes someone think they should remember it, even though they might not. See how this connects to the memory evidence I talked about earlier? So, for example... How did you feel when you saw a wealthy and good-looking woman talking to your husband? Or it can make you think that you should answer in a certain way. Don't you think that was wrong? Rather than, do you think that was wrong, implies that you should indeed think that this was wrong. This type of question is used a lot by parents to their teenagers, incidentally. I know, I'm sometimes guilty of it, and I certainly know what I'm doing. It's not through ignorance of the science. Anyway, so what I have suggested up to now is basically that there is a clear, strong link between the belief in the fairness of questions, the unquestionable benefit of questionnaires, and the idea that the brain is a simple computer that cannot lie to itself. These two assumptions are not equivalent, but they are similar in that they can both lead, unintentionally or not, to unethical and powerful forms of manipulation. The evidence is both academic, as in the examples I gave you about our ability to control people's memories, and practical, as we can see by the way public institutions, such as law courts, have to have rules to prevent questions that distort the truth. And so do we, as a respected university doing respectable research. That is amazing. That is the end of the recording, guys. How insane is that? You know, this is why it is so important to understand. And I think you guys have probably just heard something that could benefit you so much in, 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 in so many ways throughout life. Because hearing these different types of questions, you can literally sway someone into answering something 
that they had no intention on answering, but the way you ask them and the different type of question you use uh, gets that answer out of them. So especially in terms of politics, like in some of the questions that I don't know if I did it in the podcast before this or the podcast after, but you guys have heard some of the things that I've already said about the different ways that people ask, you know, loaded questions. And so, of course, all of these are loaded questions, but again, with the different types of questions or the question types that we use, I mean, it's just amazing in general. So with that being said, guys, again, there are some other things uh, that you could possibly ask, uh, ask yourself, like in terms of, you know, uh, convicting, ethical, distorting, implications, skepticism. Um, these vocabulary terms and sentences are on the... Arsenio's ESL. I'm sorry, not Arsenio's. The ArsenioButtShow.com. So if you want to check out that blog to go over some of the things you can. But with that being said, you have an exercise to do. All right. And I'm not going to get too further into this because then that could possibly become a bore. So I'm going to end it right there. But if you guys have any questions, you know how to get in touch with me. And as always, man, I'm your host, Arsenio. Stay tuned for more. Over and out.